Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. We're going to round out the book of Ruth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ruth chapter 4, we're doing verse 13 to 22, so we're going to read about, uh, as you just heard, uh, the wedding of Boaz and Ruth, the birth of Obed, and then we're going to do a genealogy. Yes, we're going to read and go through, and I'm going to preach through a genealogy, and it's kind of ironic. It really is ironic, coincidental, or God's sovereign orchestration. Uh, We're we're reading a a genealogy on Father's Day, so that's just kind of like, huh, neat, all right. Um, I've never preached a genealogy, uh, but I'm going to try, and uh, you can all go to lunch and make fun of me after. So there you go. Um, so as as we round out this story, as you just heard Tyson read, uh, there's a wedding and a baby is born, and when it comes on the heels of a lot of pain and suffering, this moment of redemption is pretty incredible. That is, when there is a lot of suffering, when rede- when when a redeemer shows up. When life takes a turn for the better, the redemption is all the sweeter in light of compared to all the suffering. If you don't know anything about the book of Ruth, here it is very briefly. Uh, It begins with a family that's now been displaced. They uh, were originally from Bethlehem. They moved to Moab, a pagan country. They have to do so because of a famine. When they get there, uh, all the men in the family die over the course of 10 years, leaving behind a, a woman named Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi goes into a great faith crisis. God has come against me. Life is horrible. She suggests to the girls, go marry, find other men here in the land of Moab. I'm going to go try to figure out life back in Bethlehem. God has come against me. Best of luck to you both. Orpah takes her up on that suggestion, stays in Moab. Ruth, however, decides, I'm going to stick with you. Moves back to uh, Bethlehem with, uh, with Naomi, and there is a great harvest going on. Life is turning around. She then catches the eye of Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, who brings us here now where we see like, okay, they get married. So, it seems like a fairly happy ending, and it is. This is good News. Not every story ends with a happy ending, but this one does. And if you quickly just go, well, there's a wedding and a baby born, and try to tie a bow on, the, on it, uh, don't, don't read the, the, the Bible like that. That's fairy tale. They all live happily ever after. That's a fairy tale. Um, the reality is, is that there were husbands that were buried. Children hadn't been born. Famine was real. They nearly lost everything. And even had believed, Naomi had believed God had come against her. It was bad. It was really bad. And when you read stories like this, it forces you to ask, if God is good, why all this bad stuff? Isn't that the question you've you've asked pretty much your entire Christian faith? If God is good, why bad stuff? I mean, if if you have kids, they'll ask you right away, right after where did God come from? Uh, is why is there bad stuff in the world? And it's big. I mean, on the global level, you look around and it's fairly simple to go, if God's good, 
why is there a Holocaust museum in, in, in D.C. right now? If God's good. Uh, if God's good, why do we have to say things like Black Lives Matter? Why do we have to say that? If God's good. If God's good, why are there killing fields in Cambodia? If God's good, why is Pol Pot a thing? If God's good, why is South African apartheid part of human history? If God is good, why are a million babies aborted every year just in our country alone? If God is good, if God's good, if God's good, you call this good? God is good. If God's good, why that? That's global. And that's just a few things. Then you zoom in a little closer on your little life. Your little life can make you go, is God good? If the news wasn't enough to discourage you, you can just look at your own life and go, if God is good, why am I sick? If God is good, why am I single? If God is good, why is my marriage so difficult? If God is good, why are my kids turning out this way? If God is good, why can't I find better friends? If God is good, why can't I get ahead? If God is good, why can't the Sounders win this year? If God is good, if God is good, why? Here's what happens. When we suffer, we are ultimately driven to make a decision. You can basically, to simplify it, you can take the route of Naomi or the route of Ruth, more or less. Suffering drives you to a crossroads and you have to make a decision. You can believe God has come against you, throw your hands up in the air and go, I'm done. Or you can go the route of Ruth and go, I'm going to abandon myself completely into the arms of God and do all that I can to just trust and ask God to hold on to me when I can't hold on to him. It's more or less what we, suffering brings this to our doorstep. If you haven't suffered much, if you live long enough, it comes to all of our doorstep. And not to be gloomy on a holiday and be like, you're all going to suffer. But it's like, it's reality. We all do show up in some pretty horrible places throughout life. And it's at those crossroads where we make real decisions, where we sow real seeds of either faith, hope, and love, trust, fidelity to Jesus and his church, or we lose our faith. Here's the thing. If you throw your hands up and go, well, God, God's turned his back on me, that doesn't solve the problem of evil and suffering. You still got to come up with, you still got to answer it. So if you go, well, I don't trust God anymore, well, what are you going to do? You're going to embrace like uh, a Hindu system of karma? You know, if you're good, you get good things. If you're bad, if you get bad things, and you're bad in a previous life, that's why your life right now is so bad. That system kind of makes a little bit of sense, but then when you look at, say, Nazi Germany, do you really want to look at all of Nazi Germany and go, you had it coming to you, you were probably bad and probably deserve it. That's their theology. That's what, do you want to believe that? Do you go that route? Do you go the route of the Buddhist? Well, all of life is suffering. You're born with all these desires, yet the desires are going un unmet. So right here in the middle, you got to just alleviate the suffering and escape. Get out of it. So you define life by yourself and your suffering. Not with God and Trinity and goodness of creation and all that. No, you just begin with me. And if you begin with me, if you begin your theology, by the way, with yourself, it's just dreadful. Anyway, you got you, you to gotta do something with the problem of pain and suffering. Or you can go the, the route of Dawkins and the other atheist crowd and just put your head in the sand and go, you know, there is no God. 
there is no God and this is why my life is so hard. There's no God and he's not good and all that. Well, if you go that route, if you come from nothing and meaninglessness and you're headed to nothing and meaninglessness, then why are you trying to fill up the middle with so much meaning and purpose? Who cares if you suffer? And who cares if you prosper? Who cares? It's all a weird nothing. So you gotta do something with this problem of pain and suffering. And scripture over and over again, the Christian worldview rolls in and speaks profoundly to it because our God is a God who not only sees suffering from afar, but enters into our suffering with us. That God doesn't just learn about your suffering and go, gosh, that must be horrible to be down there in Greenville, South Carolina in 95 degree humidity. That must be tough. But God enters into our suffering in a profound way and suffers on behalf of his own creation. The Christian worldview has something to say to suffering. And redemption is coming. So, yeah, you have to do something with this suffering thing. And we see throughout the book of Ruth, God is sovereign and working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, what do you do with your suffering? Well, one thing that you have to do is you have to learn to steward your suffering. Um, one of my favorite writers, his name is Frederick Buechner. Frederick, he, uh, he lost his father. His father committed suicide um, when he was a, a little boy. And, and then he lost several other people throughout his life, and it absolutely broke him. He's a Presbyterian minister uh, and an unbelievable writer. Won the Nobel Prize and some other things. Here's what he said in a book last year where he finally published uh, processing some of this pain that he dealt with with losing his dad. And it speaks to stewarding your suffering, which is what we see Ruth do. It's a book called A Crazy Holy Grace, The Healing Power of Pain and Memory. This book, by the way, I I think I held my breath every page. (laughs) Um, It says this. When it comes to stewarding suffering. The trouble with steeling yourself against the harshness of reality is that the same steel that secures your life against being destroyed secures your life also against being opened up and transformed by the holy power that life itself comes from. You can survive on your own. You can grow strong on your own. You can even prevail on your own. But you cannot become human on your own. Surely that is why in Jesus' sad joke, The rich man has as hard a time getting into paradise as that camel getting through the needle's eye because with his credit card in his pocket, the rich man is so effective at getting for himself everything he needs that he does not see that what he needs more than anything else in the world can only be had as a gift. He does not see that the one thing a clenched fist cannot do is accept. Even from Le Bon de Dieu himself, a helping hand. Suffering will drive you to clench your fist or open your hand. And in our suffering, God pries our fingers back and makes space to give us himself and what he thinks is a good gift. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. So, the two themes that run throughout the book of Ruth are kindness and hope. So if somebody asks you, what's the book of Ruth about? Kindness and hope. 
So let's do it. Let's walk through this, this passage together. Verse 13, chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Okay, so here we are. Marriage. They get, they get married. Now, here's how they do it. They do it the right way, according to Scripture. They don't cohabitate. They don't run around with other people. They don't move in, trying to, maybe this is a good thing, and then something, nah, maybe take it, leave it. I don't They don't do any of that. They meet. They fall in love. Ruth pushes it. Chapter 3, and uh, Boaz keeps his integrity. No, we're not going to fool around and do all this stuff that is for what married people do. Uh, Let's get married. So they get married. The Bible makes a big deal out of weddings. Big deal. Over and over again. The first page of the Bible, we have Adam and Eve getting married. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God reveals himself as a husband to Israel. That's what you see the prophets stirring up over and over again. Jesus, first wedding, our first miracle, wedding. Turning water into wine, which is a fantastic miracle, at Cana. Wow, what a lead off. If you lead off with that, I'm following you. That's great. Uh, What else do you got for us? Right, that's how he started. Then Jesus dies, raises from the dead. The apostles start preaching, and what do they say? Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride. At the very end of Scripture, we see the husband and the bride come together forever in heaven. The Bible makes a big deal out of weddings and makes an even bigger deal out of marriage. So they get married and they have a huge party. Now we don't know, I mean, if you know anything about the Jewish culture, they don't have like a 15-minute wedding ceremony, party for an hour, two, three, four, till however late you partied on your wedding if you had one, and then, and then off you go. A, a Jewish wedding can last upwards of a week, which is crazy. If you're going to a wedding going, well, we're just going to take a week off. Like, everybody? Everybody. Wow. Big deal. So we know that Boaz was wealthy. We know it was just harvest season. You can assume that this is probably a huge wedding. There's a choir breaks out in a minute. Like, it's like, holy cow. This is a big thing. So they have a huge wedding. We don't know all the details that we would have obsessed over, like, with the royal wedding a few weeks ago. We don't know what her dress looks like. We don't know what the cake looked like. We don't know who did the wine. We don't know where the food came from. We We don't know any of that stuff. We don't know who took photos. We don't know any of this stuff. All we know is that there is a marriage, and then it says they go and they, uh, Boaz went into her, they go and they consummate their marriage. They, yes, by golly, we're going to say it in church, they had sex. <gasps> they did gasp, I know. It's, it's real. You should read the rest of this book. If you think that part's offensive, whoa. All right, so, so they go and they consummate their marriage. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Okay, so as that's an important part to mark right there. Over and over again, there's several places, including two of the women that were mentioned in the previous chapter. God gave conception. That is, when we think about human beings coming into the world, we don't just go, oh yeah, that's, well, they, we got together, and this is how, you know, a sperm and an egg and a zygote, and, that, and off, off you go, here's a baby, right? No, the way the Christian worldview works is when you see a human being, you say, oh, God did that. God did that. God is the author. God is the origin. God is the one who creates human life. This is why we don't, this is why we're very much so uh, pro-life for all of life, for every life. 
Because we don't just go, ah, it's random, cause, well, maybe, maybe. No, God is the one who gives life. So, lest any parent here today think, that's my kid. Well, you're responsible, but, but God gave you that child. And it's a gift. He or she is a gift. It's a gift. It's like, why is that important to point out? Unless we assume that we deserve the grace that's called children. God gave us our children. So God opened the womb. And the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi... Blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in all of Israel. Okay, so the women now say to Naomi, before you get into unpacking the rest of that, first you just got to look at the fact that a choir breaks out. They start singing and worshiping. Like, and and, and, and it, this is massive. This is so important that you don't miss this. That when God does something great, you ought to respond in worship and gratitude and praise and clapping and thanksgiving and shouting and playing instruments and all that stuff. The whole book of Psalms is not there for filler or happenstance. It's actually what you do in response to a good and gracious God. This is what you do. This is why we worship. This is why we're not bored with the grace of God. That the good things that we have in our lives are gifts from God. James 1, every good gift comes down from above, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift that you enjoy in your life is a gift from God. Your health is a gift. Your family is a gift. Your friends are a gift. Your money is a gift. Your home is a gift. The food you eat is a gift. The car you drink or transportation you take around the city, it's all a gift. All a gift. Every cup of coffee you drink this week is another gift. Every drink of water you take this week is a gift. It's all gift. So when God gives a gift, you respond in singing. That is like, why do we have to sing so much? Because you can only accomplish in a song what you cannot accomplish in prose. That you do something, that art has to come out of you, that, that when something good happens, you respond. Unless you think you deserve it. And then you go, well, whatever. I'm not saying thanks to anybody. You see, gratitude is the source for the joy of the Christian. I'll tell you, the times you're most miserable are the times is when you're least grateful. At least I know that's definitely true about myself. So this is why we respond in worship. So, like, when the Bible commands you to clap your hands, raise your hands, bow on your knees, Get on your face. When you see these things, these commandments, that's not like, well, do that in your heart. Because that's how you do it. Like, yeah, that's how I heard it growing up. Like, oh, I'm, I'm worshiping Jesus in my heart. I'm clapping my hands in my heart. No, you, these are your hands. And you lift these. You get on your knees like this. Not down in your heart. That's not what it says. It's like, do it. Actually physically respond. Like, that's weird. I'm not like that. Well, heaven's going to be very awkward. Like, it's just going to be very awkward. You're going to show up, and it's going to be like this insane party, and you're going to be like, I'm, I'm clapping my hands in my heart, and somebody from Atlanta is going to run by with like a, a banner, and it's going to be awesome. You're like, I don't know what to do with that. Well, fortunately, you get to be there forever and figure it out. Anyway, so 
We respond in worship. And now look what the women do. They break out a choir and they start singing. And who do they say? Blessed be God. And they start addressing who? Not Ruth, Naomi. Ruth and Boaz, they don't get mentioned anymore. They're out of the picture now. They address Naomi. Why? Because the story is not about why Ruth is a hero. The story is about Naomi experiencing redemption. So they address Naomi, the one who lost all her faith. Here she is being addressed by these women. Blessed be the Lord who's not left you. God didn't leave you. Yes, you had to wait longer. You had to pray harder. You had to go through a faith crisis. Yeah, yeah. You had to go to a few funerals that you never thought you'd ever go to. Man, no life didn't take the shape you wanted it. No, it doesn't look like it. No, you don't have that perfect life that you envisioned, and it's not the American dream, and you didn't get it. And guess what? God's not shaken by that. God's not shaken by the fact that our lives don't take the shape that we thought. But listen, in his good, sovereign providence, God is working a plan. He's not abandoned us. And here's what's amazing. The community comes around and points to the woman who's gone through so much suffering. And now they go, look, Naomi, don't miss it. God did something great. God's at, God's at work. God's been present. God's been doing something. God didn't fall asleep at the wheel. Though you thought he came against you, he didn't. He was present all along. This is why the community of God is so important to point out because we will miss the goodness of God. We will. God will do great things and we'll just, <laughs> he'll raise the dead right in front of you. Like, huh, what's for lunch? You'll need your neighbor to go, he just did something amazing. That's what they do. They start worshiping and they start pointing it to Naomi. Look what God did. God gave you a grandson. He's not left you without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. They have no idea just how famous the name Obed was going to become in Israel. Keep going. So he shall be to you a restorer of life. Oh my gosh, this woman lost it. Yeah, all right. He'll be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, he's going to take care of you. In a day and age, there was no welfare system. There was nothing set up. It was, if your family dies, you're in major trouble. An old woman like this was extremely vulnerable. And here comes redemption. And then look, he's going to be a restorer of life. For your daughter-in-law... Who loves you? Who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him? This is cool. So you, you got Ruth. Ruth has this like progression throughout her, her, her whole, the whole story. You can watch her. Like, so yeah, I know I wrote it down. Oh, well, whatever. She goes from, I can't find it. Um, she, she goes from being like a foreigner to a, Moab, to, uh, to a Moabite, right, to, to a maiden, and now she's a wife. And she's, she's more than seven sons, which in a patriarchal society, seven perfect sons. Wow. This is like this woman right here, she loves you more than seven sons. And she, she's, she's now had a, had a baby. And he's going to grow up and take care of you. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse, which, which is also um, the same word for like a, a foster parent. So Naomi takes good care of little Obed. 
Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. You don't want to go too quick on that verse. You do want to just think what that experience must have been like for her holding her grandson. A place that she never thought she'd be. She probably held him really close. Like it's an intimate moment that scripture zooms in on. She holds a little Obed. And the women of the neighborhood, <laughs> these women, they're very vocal. Um, they, I just love this. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name. They gave him a name. I thought that was Boaz's job. Isn't that what men do? Isn't that, kind of, isn't that part of what we do in the Old Testament? Isn't that what the men were supposed to do? Well, they made an exception here. And the women named him. The women did. The Obed was born into a worshiping community. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. That the boy is born and people are singing to God. That's huge. Maybe you were born in church. Like, well, maybe not physically at the local church, but maybe you were born growing up in church. Don't take that for granted. Don't take it for granted. There's other places to grow up with other worldviews to grow up and other things going on. To be born growing up going to church in the family of God where people are worshiping. The older I get, the more that kind of stuff matters. And my relationships are so much richer as a result. Like my friends that grew up all over the country in other churches, and then we get together, and all of a sudden, they've been walking with the same Jesus I've been walking with for like the last 30 years. Man. So Obed was born. They named him Obed, which means servant. <clears throat> son's been born to Naomi not Ruth wow so they named him Obed he was the father of Jesse and the father of David we'll get to that in just a second um, you guys ready to do a genealogy yeah alright like alright do it turn out to bore us to death alright and don't, don't, don't judge me, but let's be honest. Most of us skip the genealogies in the Old Testament, not, not because they're not God's word. It's just because we don't know how to pronounce most of the names. Let's just call it what it is. I, I, I don't know these people. And at the same time, if you start digging around in the genealogies, they're absolutely incredible. So here's a couple things to know about this genealogy right here at the end. First, there's 10 names. This is a normal thing to do in ancient Near Eastern uh, literature where you record a family genealogy. You do the Big Ten, especially when it's in, sounds like the Pac-10 or whatever. The Big Ten, you do 10 names because if it's a royal family. You're going to see some royalty here in just a moment. So you have 10 names. Uh, you'll notice that they skip lots of generations, too. If you start poking around your Old Testament, you're like, uh, it looks like they left out like a thousand people. Why ten? And some who want to come against the Scripture and go, see, look, they don't even know how to do their genealogies right. The dating of the Bible is wrong and all that. You're reading it wrong. The answer to that is, no, this is called ancient Near Eastern literature. And they tell 
stories differently than Western white guys who are meticulous about every little detail, they don't do it that way. That is, the way we do uh, genealogies is more like the, the lights at CenturyLink Field light up everything, see everyone present. That's how we tell genealogies and family trees and all that. They, it's more like on a stage at, at a theater with a single light, and they just hone in on just, just a little bit for a purpose of telling a story. The first five names mentioned in this genealogy, sorry, this thing, it's me, it's not you. Uh, all right, there. The first five names in the genealogy are pre-Moses, okay? Pre-law. The f- next five names uh, are after Moses. So, let's learn about these guys. Well, what we can know. Um, and this is also the same thing you see with both Noah and Abraham's genealogies. So here we go. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Okay, first, Perez, uh, that, that guy, he was the guy that dominated the entire southern kingdom of Judah, including the house of Bethlehem, which is mentioned in Ruth chapter 1. Okay, here's the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Who's Hezron? We don't know. We have no information about Hezron. Easy. All right, next. Hezron fathered Ram. Who is Ram? Well, all we know is his name means exalted. We know nothing really else about Ram. Okay, Aminadab. Who is Aminadab? Aminadab, all you know is that his name is one of those sentence names in the Old Testament. Uh, that, that's the only thing unique about him that shows up in this, meaning like, uh, what is it? It's, it's my kinsman is, is noble and generous. So there's something with that idea now being woven into the theme. Then we get to Nashon. Is he next? Aminadab fathered Nashon. Okay, so Nashon. This is where we know a good bit about this guy. Nashon worked in the temple. If you go read Exodus chapter 6, or worked in the uh, tabernacle. He was actually the one that was involved in offering some of the sacrifices at the dedication of the tabernacle. He worked with Aaron, the high priest. So we have Nashon. Then Nashon fathered Salmon, which we don't know anything about him other than that he was the dad of Boaz. Boaz gets seventh place in the genealogy, which was the place of highest honor in a genealogy in the ancient Near East. Number seven, here is Boaz. The Redeemer. Boaz fathered Obed. All we know about Obed is that he ended up growing up and taking care of Naomi in her old age, and that Obed got married and became the dad of Jesse. We know a lot about Jesse in the Old Testament. Jesse uh, had several sons, and Jesse was the one where the prophet Samuel sought him out and said, hey, God's told me that there's going to be a king in Israel, and you're the father. Where's the son? He's like, well, I have a bunch of sons. And he brings all the sons out, right? Except for who? David. He was the scrawny one, the little one, the pipsqueak kind of out in the fields. Like, yeah, we give him the, he feeds the sheep kind of job. He's not much to look at. So he brings all the sons out. And each son, the prophet goes through, he's like, no, not it. It's like duck, duck, goose kind of, no, 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 no. Um, he goes back to Jesse. Jesse, you sure you don't have any other sons? He's like, well, I do have this one other one, David. Say, so we'll bring him here. He sees David. 
God says, this is the one. He anoints David. David grows up. As David grows up, he is uh, to serve Saul, the king. And it starts off pretty good. Saul is distressed because of war and things going on in the country. David was gifted with all kinds of talents. David goes and starts to play music for Saul. And the music that David played would soothe his mind and soothe his soul, the scripture says. It would calm Saul down. David was also the one where uh, when Israel was at war with the Philistines, right? And all the brothers are out at war. And Jesse says, well, hey, your brothers are probably getting hungry, uh, waiting around to go to battle. Why don't you bring something to eat? David, running errands, runs out, runs the food out. So what's going on down there? Well, there's that big giant Goliath, and he's running his mouth and defying God and defying his people. And David's like, what are we standing around for? Let's take him. He's a giant. <laughs> He's going to kill you. And David, of course, goes and gets the five stones, right? The armor was too big for him. He's like, I'm, I, I don't need I Just give me some rocks. Goes and gets the rocks, gets his slingshot, runs down. How dare you defy God, right? It's just like this unbelievable teenager filled with just like, he's just ready to go. Goliath runs his mouth. David throws the rock Bam! Knocks Goliath over, smashes his head. It's so epic. Then he runs down, and it's not done yet. He cuts his head off, hauls it up. He's like, ah! It's like ultimate brave heart moment. You're like, this is insane, this kid. Oh, my gosh. And then he just moves on, and David kills a bear, and David kills a lion, and David writes the Psalms, and David leads the nation, and David is just etched into the heart of God's people. So Jesse was David's dad. What a strange way to end this book. You get to the very end, and you get this genealogy and this huge story of death and famine and redemption all dovetailing into David. Why is that so important? What does that have to do with the Christian gospel? Has everything. When you open up Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, you'll see these family members all mentioned. Three of the four women, which would have never been mentioned in any genealogy in the first century, but three of the four women uh, should have been stoned according to Old Testament law for some of the immoral decisions that they had made. What does that mean? Well, that means outsiders are brought in. Even Gentiles are in Jesus' family line. So he's the son of David, they call him, in the New Testament. Jesus is called the son of God, the son of man, and the son of David. As son of God, we understand that Jesus is God. Is God. As son of man, we understand that Jesus is the ruler, the judge. You can read about it in uh, Daniel chapter 7. But then, as son of David, what does that mean? And it comes up over and over again. Only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not in John. John doesn't mention the son of David. 
But Matthew, Mark, and Luke over and over again will tell you that Jesus is the son of David, son of David, son of David, son of David. What does that mean? It means this. Every time you see son of David, it means that God is the promise keeper. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read this prophecy that there's going to be one who sits on the throne of Israel and his kingdom will have no end. When they say son of David in the gospels, they're saying you're the one. God keeps his promise. And every time you see Jesus being called the son of David, it's always a calling out to his compassionate side. Like blind Bartimaeus. Remember him in Mark 9? Son of David, have mercy on me. In Matthew's gospel, we have a guy that's both demon-possessed and deaf, calls him son of David. Uh, the woman in uh, Matthew 15 at the, um, at the table with the one in the crumbs that fall from the table calls him son of David. The Pharisees, they, they, they even reference Jesus as the son of David at the end of Matthew's gospel. Then when Jesus is marching into the city on the donkey, what do they say? Hosanna, the son of David. It's awesome. And then after Jesus raises from the dead, because he did that, uh, Peter starts preaching in Acts 13. And what does he say? You wicked people, you killed the son of David according to God's plan. <laughs> and he raised him up, calls him the son of David. That over and over again, this son of David, this whole thing, this whole story of Ruth was to get you to Jesus. To see that God's not falling asleep at the wheel of your life and is certainly not falling asleep at the wheel of his brides. He's the son of of David. So in David's kingdom, the borders stopped at Israel. Jesus' kingdom extends around the globe. David's kingdom oftentimes advanced by the sword. Jesus' kingdom advanced with sayings like, Peter, put away your sword. David's kingdom included adultery with Bathsheba. Jesus' kingdom forgives the adulterer or adulteress and restores dignity. David's kingdom took the innocent life of Uriah. In Jesus' kingdom, the king died for his enemies. In David's kingdom, he killed a lion. In Jesus' kingdom, he gave his life as a lamb and rose as the lion. In David's kingdom, he took the life of Goliath. In Jesus' kingdom, he slew Satan, sin, and death. In David's kingdom, we had a promise made. And in Jesus' kingdom, he is the fulfillment. You see, Jesus is the truer and greater David. 